0: Please open your Bibles to First Timothy chapter three. First Timothy, chapter three. We're going to read verses one through seven. <clears throat> It is a great privilege brethren to be here it is a great honor that the king of the universe would call us into his presence and call us into his presence because he wants to be with us that's a great joy I hope that is our joy today well we're going to read verses 1 through 7 and we'll be in this passage for a few weeks we have finally reached the qualifications of an elder. We have finally reached a place in the scripture that will tell us how to recognize those that God has gifted and equipped for this work. It's his work. It's not ours to to make into a fashion show, a popularity contest, or any of that. Well, we are, we're going to read all seven verses. If you would stand with me. First Timothy, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Notice, he does not say a good position. But a good Work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, He must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. Let's remain standing in the presence of the one who so dearly loves us. Let's unite our hearts as we pray together at his throne. Father, we do praise thee as the one true living God. All the gods of the nations are but idols, as thy word so clearly proclaims. Behind the idols are demons hungry for the worship. Of human beings. Deceptive. Powerful. And bent on the destruction. Of those made in thine image. How we thank thee that we stand before the God of life. And father that this should be a place. Of life. Abundant life. The power of thy spirit moving the hearts of thy people to praise, to love thee, to obey thee, to drink in thy love. O Christ, it is so hard for my little mind to grasp how great thy love is for sinners. when we get a glimpse of what we are without Thee, it doesn't seem possible that a holy God could ever love us. And yet, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How we praise Thee, O blessed Son what a privilege what an honor that we might come in to thy presence oh may our hearts be gripped with the sense of thy holiness lord come break through our fleshy obstructions break through our Thinking that is clogged. With the things of the world. And the things around us. Clear up our minds. Our hearts. And may we hear thy word. With joy. May we hear it with awe. May we hear it with reverence. May we hear it. With heart's praise. Oh come. Come. Spirit of God. We have asked Thee, <clears throat> we have sung to Thee to illumine our hearts to the truth today. <clears throat> Do this for us. Father, for those that are lost, and there are lost ones here, how I pray that in Thy grace, in Thy mercy, in Thy love, Thou would shatter their darkness Scatter it, O God. Shine the light of thy truth in the dark crevices and the nooks and crannies of their heart. Shine the light upon the sin and the filth that they worship. In the midst of their idols will stand their self. O God, set them free. Set them free from Pharaoh. Satan today, I pray my Father, that they, thou wouldst take them out of the bondage that they think is freedom and make them to see that, that the slavery to Christ is the greatest life imaginable. O oh Lord, come among thy people. Come and thy people bless and give thy word success. Spirit of holiness on us descend. Father, thou knowest the condition of every soul here. For those that are filled with joy, resting peacefully in thy gospel promises, oh Father, I pray that that joy came out of their mouths. As they sang to thee, as they prayed silently with whoever led the prayers. Father, may we, as one body, one voice, as much as thou wilt permit it, fill us with a unity. With him that sits upon the throne. And may we know our oneness with him and with one another. May our hearts be filled with that holy love. Not the stinking filth of this world. But the holy love that comes from thee. The holy love, O God, that thou art. Come, wash over us with wave after wave. Of thy glory, of thy love, of thy purity help thy people some are struggling father perhaps some have fallen in sin this week turn their eyes off of their sin to see thee on the cross paying the price for it oh god for all those that have sensed their weakness or are feeling weak even at this moment May they look to thee and find strength. Thou givest power to the faint. And to them that have no might. Thou increaseth strength. Lord for those. Who are stumbling. Struggling under their providences. May we learn with Paul. And may we, may we know. That thy strength is made perfect in weakness. May thy grace. Fill each of us. Now father. Father. Help this vessel of dust to bring thy word, thy living word, thy powerful word, sharper than any two-edged sword. Bring it. Help me to wield it. And Father, I do pray for all those that are sick. We have many that are sick. Father, heal their bodies. Raise them up. Lord, I I think of the Collins uh, who were uh, back with us last week and now down again with sickness. Have mercy. Strengthen each body. And Father, I, I ask for all those that are sick in any way. In fact, Father, coming back to the needs of thy people, there are some here that need assurance I pray that thy word and spirit will fire that in their souls. That they will understand that our assurance is all in Christ and his words. Lord, all of us need thee today. May we know thy great kindness. May we know thy reproofs, thy rebukes. Let us take them as thy children, and Father, for thy comforts for which we plead, and for the love without which we cannot live, please abundantly deal with thy church here today in every condition represented, and I pray it all in the name of thy Son, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. guided by the power of the Holy Ghost, Paul wrote three important and unique letters. First and second Timothy and Titus. These were written to individuals rather than churches, as in Paul's other letters. Since the 18th century, these writings have been called the pastoral epistles or the pastoral letters. Paul apparently wrote these letters during the last years of his life and ministry. So they are rich in Paul's mature thinking and experience. For that reason, they are rich in truth essential. Hear this. Essential for a Christian's doctrinal life church life, and daily life. And in these letters, Paul gives us Christ's qualifications for elders. If the Holy Spirit helps us to listen carefully, and I pray with all my heart that he will. If we listen carefully to what is said in these blessed words, these spirit-breathed words, If we hear with care these qualifications, we will hear the apostle describing the kind of pastors that God promised through Jeremiah. I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. Our message is entitled, Christ's qualifications for pastors oh may our loving heavenly father give us enlightenment wisdom and discernment by the power of the Holy Spirit and may the Holy Spirit guide us into a greater and deeper love for Christ Jesus and his churches By the way, if we call ourselves Christians, if we bear his name, then we ought to love what Christ loves. He loves the church. We ought to love the church. So let us now consider the context for Paul's qualification of overseers. It's easy just to start in this passage, read those verses, say these words mean this, that, and the other. And this is what a fellow ought to be. Though it is rare to find churches that actually look for elders according to these qualifications. So we want context today. That begins with chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. For time's sake, I will not read all of these passages, but I will summarize to the best of my weak ability. The first major idea is the preservation of the gospel and Christ's doctrine. That's what this letter is about. Preservation of the gospel And Christ's doctrine. First. uh, uh, This very first. Spirit breathed letter to Timothy begins. Paul. An apostle of Jesus Christ. Now let's listen carefully. By the commandment of God. Our Savior. And Lord Jesus Christ. Which is our hope. He wasn't. Elected to the position. He was chosen. Equipped. And sent. He then says. Unto Timothy my own son in the faith. Grace. Mercy and peace from God our father. And the Lord Christ. Jesus Christ. Our Lord. These two verses affirm the truth. That we have considered previously. In the Great Commission, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. So then, one, God the Father bestowed all authority in the universe on Jesus Christ, His Son. And He reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords in heaven. Now, that same Jesus reigns, reigns as head of his church on earth. Do you believe that? Then we should think very highly of the church. That we would want to be the kind of people that would not stumble our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would be the kind of people that yearn to encourage and build up his people. To show them the love of Christ. To walk with them in love with Christ. And that doesn't mean picking two or three people that you relate to and just hanging with them. That is not biblical. You can have your friends. That's fine. And you will be closer to some people than others. But if God has compressed you with these people, you need to know them and love them. Because Jesus does so much that he gave his blood that they might gather in his name and know him and love one another. So Jesus reigns, he reigns over the universe, he reigns here on earth in his church. His kingdom is set up in every heart into which he's breathed life. In the deepest regions of your soul. There reigns a king. If you've been born of God's spirit. And his word. Is. The order of the day. And every day. Number two. God the father and Jesus the son. The head of the church. Gave authority to the apostles. To preach his gospel to the nations. And gather believers in communities called churches go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you that demands the very presence of the church and the church is number 3 The apostles gave authority to the elders to teach and govern Christ's churches established by the apostles. Now, in this first letter of Paul to Timothy, we see that Paul has authorized Timothy to labor in a pastoral role in the church at Ephesus. It's the very thing we've just been talking about Christ's authority to the apostles, from the apostles to the elders and pastors. In this first letter to Timothy, we see many things which could be side trips uh, in each sermon. But we're going to try to stay focused on our context and then the qualifications These are rich letters. Don't let the term pastoral epistles make you think it's only about preachers. Not so. It's about how Christians ought to live and what their churches ought to look like. And that rests on the kind of men that they ordain to lead them. There is no escaping that. That's God's order. So, we see Paul speaking to Timothy this way. I besought thee to abide still in Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge us some that they teach no other doctrine. That's crucial. No other doctrine. In other words... Timothy has just been given an extremely difficult work. The church is in trouble. They're under false teachers. That's destroying Christ's worship. And I want you to go in and fix it. That's exactly what's taking place here. He obviously had some confidence That Timothy was a man of character. So this letter begins with Paul's salutation. Paul began by declaring his apostolic authority. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God. Come on, let's get real for a minute. If any of us walked into the office or just walked into our houses and said, I'm the father here. And I'm the the mother here (laughs) because of the command of God. We'd all start getting a little antsy, right? But it's the truth. We all hate authority and we have to learn how to love God's authority. We are all disordered by sin. We need to be reordered by God's truth. Paul blessedly refers to Christ as our hope. That is, we have an eager, confident expectation of eternal life because of Christ's person and work. Hope here isn't the kind of thing like, Oh, I hope I get that job. There's a possibility in that scenario that you might not. Oh, I hope that she'll marry me or that he'll ask me to marry him. Might not happen, right? That's the way we use hope. There's some sense of what might not happen. That is not the way Paul uses the word hope. It is an expectant and confident, even an eager expectation of what God has said. My hope for everlasting life is not in a single work I have done. It's all in Christ Jesus. And that's why I have a confident expectation. It's all in Christ. He's our hope. Then Paul emphasizes his loving and pastoral relationship to Timothy. My own son in the faith. Paul then greets Timothy with three important words. Grace, the unmerited favor of God in Christ Jesus. Number two, mercy, the kindness and concern God expresses to those in serious need. And three, peace, the state of harmony that comes when a repenting sinner believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is reconciled to God. That's real peace. That's a peace that the world cannot take away. The world can give you certain kinds of peace. But just as easily as you can get it. It can be taken away. It can be robbed. But the peace we have. Is a peace that comes from the fact. That we're no longer at war with God. We're at war with our sin. That unpieces us some days. But that's exactly when we turn and look at Christ. And we're at peace again. Well, the key to Paul's letter is Christ, his gospel, and his doctrine. This is verses 3 through 7. Once again, summarizing, not stopping at at every word and every verse, which I would love to. Verse 3 describes why Paul authorized Timothy to stay in the Ephesian congregation while Paul himself went to Macedonia. He gave Timothy the daunting role of correcting the false teaching, correcting the false teachers that were disrupting the church of God. To disrupt a church of God is a great sin. If we believe that, we would see very few church splits. If we believe that, we would see and love Christ's church more To disrupt the peace of Christ's church is a grave sin. And it was being disrupted in Ephesus in a big way. Charge some that they teach no other doctrine. You Understand what's being said there. He's got to go to certain people and command them in the name of Jesus Christ, to stop that teaching now. I would imagine that in many places that call themselves churches today, that would not be welcomed. Stop teaching that. That is not in harmony with the Word of God. You need to repent of that. People took that seriously. If, they, if we really understand it, if we understood it, if this was something that stood in our hearts, peace in Christ's church, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of his grace, <clears throat> many of us would stop listening to the guys we listen to. We're often just as bad as the world to be caught up in the flashbang of celebrity As opposed to someone who is serious about the souls of men and women. Serious about the holiness of God's people. People hate the gospel. But a lot of people sitting in pews hate holiness of life. But you see the reason that Paul is saying that they teach no other doctrine isn't just a... Tick-tock, the theological system is locked, all right? It isn't just that kind of thing. The fact is, your doctrine shows up in your life, whatever you profess. Whatever your profession is, whatever your confession is, what you really believe in your heart shows up in your day-to-day life, unless you have become what many are, complete phonies. You know what to say in front of everybody, but you don't live that way when you're by yourself. Doctrine matters because life matters. Your life is a running commentary on what you really believe. So, Paul wants Timothy to face off with the false teachers And to tell them to preach only the pure apostolic doctrine and gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a tall order for anybody. The church appears to be okay with it. Doctrine matters in personal life. Doctrine matters in family life and doctrine matters in church life. And today, because of our tragic and idolatrous love of self, everything's about me our cultures all like that. I'm not saying that's so of every human being in here. Those of you that have been go- born of God's spirit know what you are. And you realize it was your self-idolatry that had you under the condemnation of God. When the Lord shows you what it is. When the Lord shows you, you. It's not pretty. That's what makes Christ so beautiful. When we realize our lostness and his savingness, if we can say it that way. So doctrine matters. You're constantly showing what you really believe by the way you think when nobody's looking or even when they are looking, how you speak and how you act. Remember, I hope at least those of you that are, were here for these messages, that Paul warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. He warned them strongly. He said, take heed, therefore, unto yourselves. You're the leaders, you are the overseers, you are the pastors of Jesus' flock. It's his flock, don't ever forget. It's his flock. Take heed to yourselves, And to all the flock. You can't just like a few people here and there. If they're God's blood bought people. Then you have a pastoral responsibility to them. To all the flock. Over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. To feed the church of God. Which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this. That after my departing, now let's all listen carefully, after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you. Who's he talking to? He is talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Sometime later, that's the church of Timothy's in. After my departing shall grief as wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. That's what's going on as Paul writes this letter to Timothy. It's the fulfillment of his prediction. He knew what was coming. What a tragedy. It's especially a tragedy when you hear his words. Therefore, because of what I've just told you, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Apparently, they didn't take that warning very seriously. Pastors have to live with that reality all the time. Which is a great heartache. This could happen, but it won't happen to me. This could run you off the tracks. No, but it won't. And then sometime later on, if they're still around you, They'll come and say, you know, I should have paid attention to that. Sometimes they've left you and you hear the sadness about how their lives have crashed. Timothy had to reestablish and preserve Christ's gospel. Christ's order for men and women in the congregation. He was not to listen to the false teachers And their church distorting doctrine. That's what happens. When the doctrine begins to move away from what Christ has commanded. The church's life begins to show it. Sometimes it's a very slow drift. But it's not long. It's not long. Before you start seeing the deformity happen. Paul describes the false teachers and their doctrine. He he describes their doctrine as fables, endless genealogies, and vain jangling. Now, the church seems to be on board with that. And he says, No, Timothy, go in there and tell them this is a fable. It's not what Jesus taught. They wanted to be teachers of the law. The false teachers. But Paul says his charge to Timothy in, in verse five has three things in view. He said, Now I've commanded you here, and now here's what the purpose of that commandment is. All right. I've told you to go in and do all these things. Number one, love out of a pure heart. That should be the description of this congregation and of every congregation of which Jesus is the head love out of a pure heart number two a good conscience Hmm. we want to have one of those and thirdly genuine faith not phony faith not lip labor not mouth religion but love out of a pure heart, a good conscience and genuine faith. That's why I'm giving you this command. Many of us went just at the word command. That a man would command me. That's right. Paul says to this man, do this because this is the result. Here's the fruit that that tough job I've just given you is going to bear. Love out of a pure heart. False doctrine cannot produce it. It will not. Well then, Paul explained the proper use of God's law. Verses 8 through 11. Apparently the heretics wanted to be teachers of the law instead of the gospel. Worse still, Paul said that they did not understand the law nor its application. He says it. They don't understand what they're doing. They don't know what they're talking about. But the people who are listening, just turn on the internet anytime and you will see false teachers and people not only sucking up their false doctrine, but sending them lots of cash or maybe Bitcoin today. They'll find a way to get the money out of your pocket. So Paul, Paul gave a brief exposition in chapter one of the proper use of the law The text says we know that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly, and for sinners, for unholy and profane. God did not give his law to expose and condemn the righteous. It's a standard of righteousness. It's a standard of righteousness. It's good under the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's good, it's holy, it's just, it's righteous. It's God's law. God's law in the wicked exposes and condemns sin. In the righteous, it's a standard of righteousness. It can no longer condemn him. Because Jesus took the penalty of the law. Jesus took the damnation that falls upon lawbreakers. And bore it that they might be righteous before God. Brethren, every time your sin stands up and mocks you, every time it fools you and you fall face first into it, every time you lie down and wickedness that you've done years ago pops up and haunts you, look to Christ and say, yeah, I did that. And that's why my Savior hung on the cross. Paul then demonstrated <clears throat> Paul then demonstrated that the glorious gospel of the blessed God was the measure by which the church was to evaluate doctrine the doctrine of Christ person his teaching his doctrine of the kingdom His doctrine that he and the apostles taught about the believer's life, those are our standards. He that hath my commandment and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. Just an act of love, it's not labor. And I can tell you this even if it were labor, to have Christ as the master, is to be in the safe place as a slave. Amen. Pharaoh Satan is a hard master. So <clears throat> Paul then testified to his conversion by God's grace. <clears throat> he began with his salutation. He gave us the key to his letter. He explained the proper use of God's law. And then he testified to his conversion by God's grace. Now, it's not a mistake. And it's the kind of thing you can read through and, and just not pick up. We should pick it up quite obviously. He says, these guys don't know what they're talking about with the law. How could he say a thing like that? Because he had been a Pharisee, a Jew of the Jews, a Hebrew of the Hebrew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He said, none of my racial brethren could come and pin anything on me. They don't know what they're talking about, these guys. And as one who knows the law, I can tell you, it's tragic that this church... That I have preached to. That I have loved. is moved in this direction. (sighs) Paul gave his own testimony. Next to his condemnation of their faulty law use. They don't even know the law. They don't really understand it. This is what they want to preach and teach. He said... I used to do that. He tells the Philippians. I'm cream of the crop when it comes to the Hebrews. But it's all a dunghill to me. Now that I see Christ. Paul gave his own testimony of the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And he contrasted God's work of grace in himself to the heretics preoccupation with and their misuse of the law. As a lost Pharisee, Paul had hated the doctrine of Christ and had persecuted Christ's people. He declared himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious. That made his testimony of God's saving grace so stunning. He understood the law. He understood the purpose of the law. And he said... It doesn't compare to the glorious, bright, and burning truth of Jesus. The law could not and would not produce a transformation in Paul's life like Jesus did. Apparently, by the time Paul wrote to Timothy, numerous sayings had become well known in the churches of Christ. So Paul said, This is a faithful saying. This is a true saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Every regenerate heart should at least echo, oh, Amen. He came into this world and found me. He came to me in my dung heap and lifted me out. He came to my cadaver and said, live. Amen. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. They, now, once again, he's not just saying, well, you know, there's a lot of slogans out there. This is a nifty one. Not what he's saying. He is saying the false teachers are lying to God's people. Here's a saying that everybody ought to believe and hold on to. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not the law. Paul says that Christ's purpose was to show to sinners throughout the ages that God in Christ is exceedingly patient. If God wasn't patient, we would all be in hell. But there is a time when his patience comes to an end. Not because he's faulty, but because he will not show it any further. Paul says that Christ's purpose was to show sinners through the ages That God in Christ is patient and that he is eternally gracious to sinners. Gripped by the wonder of what he's just said, Paul burst into a doxology. He does that. If you'll read his letters carefully, he'll be riding along. and Man, he'll come to one of those wonderful moments where he says the truth and it's so big. He says, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he's done. That ought to be us too. That ought, ought to be this people. Well, I'd love to stop on his doxology, but we'll We'll keep moving. Paul finished this this chapter powerfully in reminding Timothy. He exhorts his son in the faith. He says, this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest war a good warfare. What's he just told him? You've got to go in with all the armor of God. You've got to go in with the sword of the spirit and you need to start hacking. And you go in there and do a good job. Amen. You've been cut out for this. You've been prepared for this. Paul couldn't say that to just everybody. But Timothy had been with him for years. He'd been with him mission after mission. He's seen the things Paul had been through. He Heard the doctrine over and again. He heard the glories of Christ. He heard of the God-man. He heard of the eternal Son of God becoming flesh. He heard of Him being born of a virgin. He heard of Christ living a perfect life keeping the law in the place of sinners. He heard about Christ crucified for the sins of His people. He heard about Christ's glorious resurrection the third day and His ascension into glory and that He was coming back he heard it over and over it was part of his being your children ought to be like that you ought to tell them the truth you ought to glorify god every time you think about him saving you oh my they ought to hear so much of christ that they could say it in their sleep That's what prepared this man. Paul says, okay, I'm going to Macedonia. You go in and take these guys on. You have to love Timothy. He didn't go, um, maybe Titus ought to do this. He closed the chapter. Paul closes the chapter of all things with a word of church discipline. Paul had excommunicated Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were probably the ringleaders of the false teachers. A pastor, according to God's heart, must proclaim, must proclaim and protect the gospel along with Christ and the apostles' doctrine in order to protect Jesus' sheep. And there'll be times when that won't be, that won't be popular. A pastor, according to God's heart, must proclaim and protect. He must be a warrior against false teachers and their doctrine. And he must discipline false teachers when necessary. Sometimes people get a book going in the congregation and everybody's like really loving it and thinking it's great. And sometimes it's pure spiritual poison if you understand what they're saying. Do we understand that we vote for politicians because they say things that we think they mean? They use words all the time to make you think this and make you think that. So that you'll say, this guy's on my team when he isn't. And some of them are so clever. They're telling you a lie that sounds like the truth. It happens in pulpits, too. Well, anyway. That's how the first chapter ends. Here's a church. That has known apostolic preaching and is being drawn away. (sighs) Well, we want to get to chapter 2. And we'll move quickly through that. We don't need to spend as much time because we've laid the foundation. Now Paul then begins to correct some of the damage to the Ephesian church. It was in need of gospel repair. Paul began with correcting aspects of worship and mission. Don't let that get by you. He didn't just start off with, okay, today we're going to do a real short run at the doctrines of grace. That would have been a good study. And I'm not being irreverent. What I'm saying is what many of the reformers understood. Doctrine affects worship. What you believe matters, and it affects worship. So under the influence of false doctrine, the Ephesians had apparently uh, drifted away or were beginning to drift away from prayer, and therefore, their missionary vision, their evangelism. How about that? Paul exhorted them. First of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all that are in authority. The church was to pray all manner of prayers for all manner of people, even kings and government officials. Why? So that Christ's people could live godly lives in peace and quiet. Now I ask you. And it's just a question. But is it possible that our nation is in this roaring decline? Because people that profess to be Christians have not obeyed this command to pray because I'm going to tell you what our comforts if you're not noticing this are disappearing right. law was just signed a bill was just signed into law that will put into the hands of people who hate scripture and hate Christ and hate his people legal recourse to us do you know that are you aware of this Christ's people should be living godly lives in peace and quiet if we can. I viewed a video this week that, if it was accurate, says <clears throat> one of the things that our media is hiding is the amount of persecution of Christians throughout the world. I don't doubt that. mm <clears throat> May not be true, but I have no reason to doubt it. If they can say, you must take this medicine, but you can't have that medicine when the first one kills people and the other one is proven to save their lives, there's something wrong with that government. Paul then says that... This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. We should, be saving, we should be praying for all kinds of people, but we should especially be praying for those that are in our government because he saves all kinds of people, even persecuting kings. Paul then majestically declared that there is but one mediator, one go-between, one prophet, priest, and king between men and God, the man Christ Jesus. He keeps coming back to the gospel. He keeps coming back to the person and work of Jesus Christ over and over. Why? First of all, because Paul lived and breathed the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he lived for. That's what he lived for. But also because of the false doctrine that was in the church. It needed to be corrected. This is why he keeps coming back to the Lord Jesus, his person and his work. Christ alone gave himself to be the bloody ransom payment for all kinds of sinners. And God the sovereign had ordained Paul a preacher and apostle to the Gentiles. Proper doctrine and proper church life can bear the fruit of peaceful lives of godliness and honesty. <clears throat> but we do need to have a context in which to live, to live that out, to show the glory of the, the transforming power of the gospel. If we're all running for our lives all of the time, it's quite difficult to have the kind of power that a life lived next door can have. A Christian life that really shows forth the glory of the Savior. Now, Paul then corrected the roles of men and women. This is a hard one to summarize and go through quickly. But in verses 8 through 15, the holy apostle told Timothy to instruct the men to lift up their hands in holy living and in expectant prayer. He did not want them to do this in a spirit of dissension and doubting. Kind of hard to pray when you've got a problem with half the people in the room. Or even one. Isn't that so? He commanded the women to dress modestly in the worship of God. He he starts with worship. And he begins with what? What? Prayer, prayer. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. I love the word. We're to preach the word. It's absolutely vital to preach the word, but we'll get very little fruit if we are not a people of prayer. That's right. So. He goes right to the heart of worship in his correcting. Why? Because the church is being deformed by false doctrine. And then therefore there is no genuine love and desire to pray as they ought. Paul did not want them to be splitting and angry and doubting and arguing. And then he commands the women to dress modestly. Amazing. Especially in the worship of God. That is not a little thing. Oh, modesty. That's always legalism. Mm -hmm. Well, why did Paul put it squarely in the middle of part of what was wrong with their worship? Paul wanted the professing, uh, the women who professed Christ to be godly. He expected them to wear clothing that expressed holiness and purity of heart. Not high fashion, not wealth, not sensual excess. Such dress denied the very transforming power of the gospel. Just close. No, it's not. It's a language of your heart. Yeah. Then he got in real trouble. <clears throat> Under the influence of the false teaching, women were now teaching men in the congregation. Look around and see it proliferating. In the evangelicals. Nevertheless. Paul plainly says that he did not permit a woman to teach. All right. People very often focus on that. And they don't look at the context. That's why we're in the context for each one of these things. There was false teaching in the church. And there were false teachers in the church. And Paul is saying. By the way the women are not to be preaching. He therefore commanded them to learn in silence by appealing to the early chapters of Genesis. I know about 5,000 questions just went up in your head, but we don't have time to stop and deal with that right now. You could, of course, come to the Q&A in January and bring it up. I've been having some wonderful discussions lately that are going to end up in the Q&A when the dead air sets in. So he therefore commanded them to learn in silence and by appealing to the early chapters of Genesis he declared that women were not to usurp authority over men and teaching in this sense is an authoritative act i didn't write this i didn't make this up and this is a crucial point the apostle forbade women to teach in the congregation just before giving the qualification for elders. That's not a mistake. And sometimes you miss it because it goes chapter three. And we go, oh, okay, we're into something else. And that makes us miss the point. Now that brings us finally to the qualifications of an elder. Sound leadership restores Christ-honoring church order. That's, that's what we're talking about here. He starts with worship. There's nothing more important in life than the worship of God. Your flesh will fight you on that. If you've ever tried to pray more than five minutes, you know that your flesh does not want The discipline of communing with the one who saved you. It starts with worship. And that worship began with prayer. And then it went to how we actually come into God's presence. And what we wear does matter. And by that, I don't mean, oh, you have to come in in a fancy suit. Or an expensive dress. But modestly. In a way that you're not, you know, just kind of subtly saying, yes, I know I'm kind of in a strict church, but check me out anyway. We're not strict, sin is strict. The primary problem with the Ephesian congregation was its leadership. So now we're at the heart of it. The primary problem stares us in the face when Paul begins to say, now here's what your pastors, your elders, your bishop need to be like. I'm telling you, my friends, and I'm not saying this with any hatefulness, I'm not saying this. I will do everything I can to wrap, ramp my intensity down to the sweetest and meekest. Most churches don't believe this. They don't look for men like this. Paul's discussion of women leads to the subject of proper, God ordained male leadership. The primary problem, again, is the leadership. These men must be exemplary Christians, not good old boys. Their faithfulness, their character, their self-control, their rule of their homes, their deep knowledge and knowledgeable experience as Christians must shine in their lives. Now, it is possible for a younger man to be an elder. But you you do understand the word elder means an older guy, a lot older. Why? Why? Because when you're young, you have loads of ideas that you think are just great. And some old stick in the mud comes along and goes, mm-mm, that won't work. You don't know how that's going to work out. <clears throat> and then you blow that off, of course, because you're brighter, smarter, and new is better than old. Right? Old doesn't know anything, hmm. Well, I'll tell you what. I've known some old people. It's like, how did you live on the planet for eight decades and not learn anything? I've run into a few of those, but generally not. Most people live long enough and have an idea of like, uh, this is wisdom. This is not wisdom. In our day, it's like, oh, sweetie, just go ahead and do what you want. It's your life. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. That is damning doctrine. I'm telling you. There's somebody that will tell you what to do, and it is the living God. And the kind of men that need to be in pulpits are men who understand that. Their lives are to manifest what they're preaching. That's what Paul requires. That's because Jesus requires it. Let me say they must, they must authoritatively administer Christ's word to the congregation while modeling its truth in humility. Paul follows the qualification of elders with the qualification of deacons. And that brings us to finally those qualifications. Let's read them. Paul quotes another faithful saying regarding the good work of a bishop. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Of Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. Paul said. This is a true saying. If. Now if the Holy Spirit. Puts these kind of words. In an apostle's mouth. We should sit up and listen. If a man desires. The office of a bishop. He desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife. Vigilant. Sober. Of good behavior. Given to hospitality. Apt to teach. Not given to wine. No striker. Not greedy of filthy lucre. But patient. Not a brawler. Not covetous. One that ruleth well. His own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, we're going to consider each of these uh, qualifications in the weeks ahead, God willing. <clears throat> but let us deeply consider the following truths and hide them in our hearts. Number one, all these qualifications are the character of Jesus Christ. That's right. Number two, the words bishop, elder, and pastor are the same office. Now, we'll see that. <clears throat> Each of those words points out a different aspect of that office or of that function within the church. Pastors, after God's own heart, are not and cannot be perfect in this world. I'm going to repeat that. When you look at these qualifications, it's like, where do you find somebody like this? Pastors after God's own heart are not and cannot be perfect in this world. They will fail. The issue is, what do they do when they fail? It's the same thing in your life. However, they can and they must be exemplary Christians. Mm -hmm. Their faithfulness, their character, their self-control, their rule of their homes, their knowledge, experience as Christians must shine in their lives. As I said earlier, they must authoritatively administer Christ's word to the congregation. They must hold forth the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died on Calvary's cross and rose again the third day to save his people from their sins. And they must do that. They must preach these things while modeling the truths in humility. No one can do that. Apart from the Spirit's help. No one. So. Here's our last thought. Paul reveals the heart and soul of the letter. I had a whole lot more here. You're not surprised. But I'm just going to say. This. Paul writes, these things write I unto you, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But uh, if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. Why did he write this letter for God's house to be in order? Which means they have to hold the head. Jesus Christ. They need to know the head. Jesus Christ. They need to love And obey the head. Jesus Christ. It's about God's house. God's building a temple. God's building a kingdom. And we are part of it. And so God wants his churches. Problematic as they can be. To be moving toward maturing. And moving toward the goal. We're going to be like Christ. For whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. That's how it's going to work out in the end. So stay in the course. Keep walking. Keep battling. Keep looking to Christ. Keep mortifying. Keep listening to the teaching of Scripture. Don't just take the three things you like and hammer on those all the time. Take the whole counsel of God and look and say, How do I apply this to my life so that I can be more Christ-like? He wants his church that way. And that's why Paul is writing to Timothy. He said, this is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so we want to make sure that all that we preach is the truth. And he gives a wonderful line of it, but we will stop. Paul's first letter to Timothy can be summed up this way. God's gospel of grace in Jesus Christ leads to doctrinal, practical, and visible transformation. I'll say that again. It leads to doctrinal, practical, and visible transformation in the lives of those who repent of their sins and believe on Christ. And proper church leadership lies at the heart of proper worship, proper roles for men and women, and proper living for Christ in this world. I close with Pink. He says that the marks of a true shepherd are these. The doctrine of Christ is on his lips. The spirit of Christ is in his heart. And the example of Christ is in his life. May God grant such men to all his congregations. Amen.